There was a time when the world was so young there had not yet been a sunrise. But even then, there was my brother, my captain, my podcast. Elves have their forests to protect, dwarves their mines, men their fields of grain. But we podcasters have the rings of power to talk about, unfortunately. <laughs> I'm Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. I'm Emily, also known as J.R.R. Tweeted. Today's episode is The Eye. Episode 07 of Amazon's Lord of the Rings television show, The Rings of Power. While I'm here, everyone should check out The Sounds of 007, which was just launched on Amazon, because that's actually a good thing to watch. Nice. Anyways, our spoiler warning, we will be spoiling everything that has aired thus far of The Rings of Power, and we will be discussing all published Lord of the Rings materials, even if they probably don't apply to the show, uh, whether they be Peter Jackson's films or Tolkien's other entries in the Legendarium. However, we will save speculation based on prior knowledge, though that doesn't matter at all for the show, in a special spoiler section at the end, which probably won't spoil anything, but it will all come after a musical break. Emily, I hated this episode. Good Lord. Jesus wept. I mean, honestly. Um, I, I think, okay, so... so. Oh, God in heaven. So the for our viewers, who, or viewers, our listeners who don't know the context, we usually record these episodes on Friday night. Uh, well, Friday night for me, Fridays generally, uh, usually after I finish work. And I had a dog shit week at work and I had a dog shit day on Friday. And I got done with all of my stuff on, on Friday uh, late and got Amazon up to start watching the show and got literally 30 seconds into it and got tears in my eyes and was like, I can't do this. Like, I can't do, I can't subject myself to this today. So now we are recording from Saturday where the insanity has uh, set in slightly more. <laughs> so um, maybe before we get into how fucking stupid this TV show is, maybe we should start with <laughs> something cheerful. Uh, what was one good thing about this episode? Uh, I will say I did like the orange Instagram filter they put over the new Mordor <laughs> or Southlands yeah. or uh, that looked pretty cool. I think part of it is also like it was cool by omission because it didn't have a lot of the sterile looking yep. backdrops that a lot of stuff has had or just boring looking backdrops that a lot of stuff has. Um, it was also be during a lot of those Mordor scenes, there wasn't a lot of dialogue. So there was a lot of stuff that could or there wasn't stuff that could make me mad or annoyed <laughs> or frustrated with the show. Um, so, yeah, uh, orange Instagram filter for the win. Yeah. That's my MVP for this episode. Yeah, I actually would second that one as well, because like I, th I think it kind of was reminiscent to me. And this is me giving it way too much credit, uh, but it, it was kind of reminiscent to me of uh, David Lowry's The Green Knight. Uh, and I'm, I can't mm -hmm. remember if I said this on this podcast yet, but I feel like I should get this out into the world, uh, the zeitgeist, which is that David Lowry is the only man in the world who should be trusted with a live action adaptation of the Silmarillion. Uh, and I think uh, whatever the hell is going on in The Great Night, a fantastic adaptation of some weird medieval stuff uh, was exactly the energy that we should have for a Tolkien story. Shame that's not what we got. Uh, so my only positive thing about this shit show and episode was uh, when Durin turned into a boomer comic and was like doing the whole, oh, I hate my wife's parents. Uh, I hate the in-laws. My wife's mom is such a bitch. Uh, and then uh, they're kind of both being like, I'm so sorry for uh, calling your parent a bitch or an asshole or whatever. Uh, and Durin starts in on the, but you know, she really is actually a fat, ugly bitch. Uh, and Deesa's like, how dare you? And then he 
starts backing up, it, like, you know, rolling it back in a way that was, like, so kind of classically Scottish man uh, that I watched and I went, like, now, obviously, my partner does not call my mom a bitch, but, like, on other <laughs> things, Connor and I have had this interaction where, like, we've argued about something and been like, no, no, we're done with this. This is a joke now. And then he's been like, but, but, and I've been like, no, no. And he's had to wind up in exactly that way. So that was kind of cute for me, I think. That that nice little bit of uh, local flair, we'll call it. <laughs> yeah, I'll say I, despite the words they say, I don't hate the Elrond Durin stuff. That's probably the strongest part of this show at this point. I yeah. think a lot of that's Robert Arameo. Oh, and yeah. I don't uh, remember the actor who's playing Durin the fifth or Prince Durin. Um, but uh, I think both of them are legit trying. I think Sophia Nembede is trying. So I think all those scenes like, purely from a performance standpoint work. Um, but it's just, it, it, it's bleak, man. Cause <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Um, I, I've also not had a great week and it's nowhere near as bad as Emily's. Um, I've been reeling from this. Um, so this website known as fandom has purchased websites known as GameSpot, game FAQ, giant bomb, yada, yada. And fandom is basically a company that has, subsumed the entire fandom wikipedia space online um it is it is a website that i unfortunately have to use both for this podcast for my metal gear podcast it's just a quick way to go and look up facts and honestly it's just the first google result most of the time yeah. you try to ask google a question so it's like when you can actually get to the information that's there it's not the worst thing in the world the problem is fandom has the worst user experience in the world. <laughs> so uh, any single page you load up, um, let's say I just wanted to look at, say, Elrond, I will get a big fucking video up top that's like, this is Elrond's history in video form, because remember, Facebook made everyone turn all their content into video. <laughs> in the lower right of the corner, there will probably be a preview for something completely un unrelated, like an analysis of Neon Genesis Evangelion. <laughs> <laughs> to the left will be like a toolbar that if you like slightly hover over, will get a pop up for you to jump to like Captain America's Wikipedia page <laughs> or Optimus Prime's Wikipedia page. <laughs> and then on top of that, there's about four to five ads. And then once you account for all of that, what little page real estate is left is there with the content you're actually looking for. It is literally the worst user experience in the world. And what really chaps me is that Fan wikis, when they started back in like, let's say the early aughts, is that yeah. right? The zero, yeah. yeah. Um, the early aughts, they were community driven, non monetized, non commercialized. It was just a way for fans, you know, from all over the world to come together and work together on building a forum of knowledge around these, you know, things, whether it's Lord of the Rings or Metal Gear Solid or, you know, Marvel Comics, whatever it might be. Um, and it, it was great. And it was actually a fun process. And obviously, you know, anything that's like community driven online is susceptible to, you know, bad faith players, misinformation, but it was still something that was earnest and true made out of a desire to let's accumulate knowledge because it is disparate. We're all relying on stuff we read for, uh, in TV guides from 1997 or just heard somewhere. And let's try to like create an actual 
database with integrity with all this information. Yeah. Um, one thing in, in this kind of ever encroaching God, the fucking black storm that is uh, uh, fandom.com. Uh, the, the thing that I do want to uh, share with the world for those who don't spend as much time online Googling niche Lord of the Rings things as me. Um, there are two really good fan wiki sites, one of which is Frozen in Time, thank God, from 2010. Uh, so everything that's there will remain there. And the other isn't, uh, but is still massively comprehensive. Uh, that one is Tolkien gateway and that one is also a, a sort of fan oriented uh or fan built uh wiki source for all things jrr tolkien uh they just had a new <laughs> a new uh ui update not as bad as fandom.com it looks like shit but it, it's great um some of the analysis i disagree with but there is no site on the internet that is as comprehensive an encyclopedia for all things tolkien as tolkien gateway so they're great and then the other um which is actually geared more towards fan fiction writers but has because of that because it's trying to answer every single question a fan fiction writer might have in the course of drafting has has a massively helpful uh, indexing system for, you know, you can search um, characters, character pages, you can go year by year through every single age uh, in, in Middle-earth. Uh, you can do uh, events and connect all of the players through that, through indexing. So so it's all really good. And that's um, Henneth Annan, uh Story Archive. Uh, I will pop that up on, on Twitter when this episode goes out. But if you are looking for things that are not utterly dog shit, like fandom and all of its accompanying sub-wikis, uh, Tolkien Gateway, Hannah Thannon, those are the place to go. Uh, and they are lovingly cared for instead of whatever the fuck this hellhole is. Yeah. Um, yeah, Tolkien Gateway is good. It's the other one I use if I'm just looking up basic facts. Um, I Technically, like the Wiki of Ice and Fire is also independent and does not have the fandom user experience thing that's ruining it. But that is an offshoot of Westeros.org, which is run by a couple of racists, so I can't endorse it in any yeah. good faith. Um, so it's it's bleak and it's like under fandom the other problem beyond just like the bad user experience is that it's completely line goes up driven like whatever like bullshit quarterly profits that fandom thinks they make off this stuff if a web page is not getting enough web traffic or there's not enough content updates on a regular basis they will just delist stuff in full Great. so any knowledge that's been accumulated which probably started in a um, you know, free to join space that was completely community driven, that stuff will get lost because it's subsumed by um, fandom, by Wikia or whatever it is. And, you know, the concept of a wiki is very useful. So, of course, someone added a fucking A to the word and turned it into a fucking brand. <laughs> and now it's rendered actually looking up information pretty much useless on online. Yep. Classic. Um, this doesn't really have anything to do with the Rings of Power, but... I don't know. I Actually, like it does. Some you know what? Like, I'm going to bullshit this. But if we want to talk about things that fucking obliterate SEO, things that bear almost no relationship to, to the things that they are meant to be about, things that create just like a totally toxic wasteland for fandoms, uh, there's a pretty close one-to-one -one between Amazon's Lord of the Rings and whatever the fuck is going on at fandom. Those two swamps, they may not be the exact same swamp, but they are uh, fraternal swamps, I would say. All right, um, <laughs> let's let's try talking about this episode. Um, as much as I hate it, I do want to say I had a pretty solid time because my cat was in my lap the entire time. Oh. Gendry, like my mean cat, um, who, <laughs> um, like getting lap time with him is always plus or minus. And for him to do it for all 70 minutes of the Rings of Power episode I just watched, um, that definitely made it a more pleasant experience. They say when cats like lay on you and are purring, they're trying to heal you. I think he <laughs> could like feel the psychic damage the show was like <laughs> leveling on me. So he's like, let, let, let me help you out, buddy. I know I usually attack you 
you and I'm kind of just a cat, but <laughs> this time I'm I'm gonna be here for you, buddy. That's delightful. Um, so uh, where where should we start with this? I, I like your question here first. I'm gonna ask it to you since you put it in here. What does it mean to trust your audience? Ah, haha. This is fun. Uh, it's not fun. I'm really mad about the show for this specifically. And because of the absolutely insane cry on it at the end that we'll get to, uh, no doubt, in depth in a second. Um, but it's actually something that I feel like we talked about a lot in the context of the show. And maybe, ironically, have not defined as well as we could have. Um, so, so basically, I kind of want to get back in like the most annoying and condescending way possible. I want to get back to like the dynamics of like language and trust and narrative and how these things kind of relate. Which is to say that like language works, right? Because when when people have a conversation, when people speak to one another, there is a trust and an assumption that when um, I say the word wagon whoever I'm saying it to knows what that means. It, it, it evokes the right image in their mind. And so when we are both talking about wagons, wagon means wagon. And, and even if there is nothing about a wagon that inherently means it is called wagon, we know what that means. And that is the level of trust that you bring to a conversation with someone when you're speaking in the same language, or even when you're speaking in different languages and kind of fumbling your way through. There's, there's a sort of trust between human beings that this form of communication will work. This is, of course, really crucial to storytelling. Uh, obviously, storytelling is uh, oh god, what is the one division thing? What is uh, what is storytelling what but is storytelling language persevering? <laughs> yes, there yeah. you go. Um, so, so like you know, the storytelling is obviously taking language, making it more beautiful, adding you know flourishes, whatever. Um, but storytelling necessarily also brings in this additional level of trust between the storyteller and the audience. Um, and one of the things that I, I uh, and it's not just because I'm a little fucking weeb for Star Wars uh, and only ever want to talk about it, um, but because I think it's actually a really good example of it is if you think back to the very first time you watched Star Wars A New Hope and, and however old you were in that moment, and, you know, for me, I was like five years old. So not a lot going on in the old brain at that point. Um, five years old, sitting down to watch Star Wars, just seen a space battle and then was brought to a desert planet, which ironically looked like the place that I lived at the time. Uh, and then there's this old man uh, telling stories. And, and in about a two minute span, he says, uh, the Jedi Knights were the guardians of the Old Republic. Uh, there were these things called the Clone Wars. Um, your father, Luke, fought in the Clone Wars, and he was one of the greatest of the Jedi Knights. And more than that, he was a friend of mine. And then the Old Republic fell and the Empire rose. And all of this happens in about two minutes. And you will notice that Obi-Wan does not say, and by the way, the Clone Wars was started when the Sis and the Republic went to, uh, you know, came to blows with one another. This was all orchestrated by Palpatine. Uh, and uh, a war, by the way, is when two groups of people fight. And clones are things that are copies, carbon copies of, of other things. And also, Luke, don't forget that your father means uh, the person who shagged your mom. Uh, and don't forget that the Jedi Knights are the based off of ninjas or samurai or whatever. And uh, they have laser swords. When, when this bit of exposition is given in, in the story, um, it, it is both meaningless and meaningful. It's meaningless in that we don't get a definition for it, but it is meaningful in that George Lucas trusts, as he is writing out these words, that we as the audience are going to take it in the spirit in which it is intended. Which is to say, it is meant to fill out this world without turning it into an encyclopedia entry. And he trusts us with that, right? Like, George Lucas has many faults, but at least he had trust in when writing A New Hope that he could say these things and the audience would get it and the audience would go with it and take it in the spirit in which it, is, in the spirit in which it was performed. 
in the subsequent 40, 50 years since uh, Star Wars A New Hope came out, um, I think there's been a loss of trust between uh, between storytellers and audiences, uh, at least on the mainstream level. Um, and I know, you know, J.J. Abrams is like the really popular punching bag for a lot of this, um, but but for a good reason. Um, one of the examples, I'm actually not going to go to Rise of Skywalker or the new Star Treks for this, but one of the really good examples, I think, of this loss of trust is, is the Cloverfield franchise, um, where Clo- the first Cloverfield was, uh, by all imagination, uh, by all sort of imaginings, a very good film, uh, like a good action horror film. Uh, and everything that came after that, including his weird attempt to add lore to the Cloverfield monsters came out of a mistrust of the audience. And it came from this idea that people would watch Cloverfield and not get exactly the right idea about what J.J. Abrams had in his head when he was writing Cloverfield or when he was producing Cloverfield that he wanted them to get. It's a similar phenomenon to J.K. Rowling uh, and J.K. Rowling, you know, still pumping out weird shit about what Harry Potter is doing, you know, 30 years <laughs> after the last book was published. It's about the sense of control and not trusting your audience and not and not sort of having an open relationship with, with your audience uh, that is based off of trust that they can take the things, the tools that you have set down in, in your narrative and make of it what they will and that the things that they have that they will make of it are 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 still sort of part a good part of the sort of overall outcome of of your story. The Rings of Power has no trust in its audience. Um, I, I don't think that they, you know, I, I used the example earlier of if they said wagon, if I said wagon to someone, I would trust that the person I was saying it to knew what a wagon was. I genuinely don't think that the Rings of Power writers at this point think that if they said the word wagon to me, I would be smart enough to know what a wagon is. So if they said wagon, they would need to cut to an image of a wagon so that me, the fucking moron who hasn't seen a fucking car on two wheels, would understand what a wagon is. And I think this loss of trust is such a massive part of the overall degradation of storytelling storytelling quality, particularly, you know, like uh, like done at a hyper rate in the last uh, 10, 15 years. But it's also just part of this mass condescension, which is like, I don't understand why these guys who have no career, like literally have a shorter resume than me and I'm 24 years old uh, and like genuinely can't write to save their lives, should get to kind of sit and and condescend to all of us about how like we can't understand the story unless it's told in this really dumb and sort of piecemeal way. Um, and it makes for just like a shitty episode, which is basically what we've seen. And it, it makes for a shitty series overall. Um, and as we got into, I think, the last thing with the kind of whole Easter egg stuff, it just leads to a whole sort of cascade of dumb shit. Um, but I think it really just all of the kind of problems of the show come down to the, this issue of them not trusting the audience. And it, it sucks. I think one of the silliest things that occurred in this episode was a fake out death with a seal door. <laughs> um, let's pretend I am the person I play on this podcast, like a baby brain film watcher <laughs> only. There are literally three people I can guarantee survive <laughs> until like the last alliance. It is Alrond Galadriel and a seal door. <laughs> like literally the one person like I, they, so like when like, you know, it's, whatever like Mordor has happened you know so that just happened and like you know Isildur is like buried in a flaming house and then later we get a scene with Elendil and he finds uh Muriel and um the non-Osimo guy I forget that guy's name Valandil because every name is just super basic and yeah. boring um and he's like where is Isildur and I'm like well I know he doesn't die so I'm assuming they're just gonna cut to him and he like went off to do his own thing or like you know went mad with anger at the or like i figured they were just going to cut to something else but no we were led to believe that that 
house collapsing in on him in the first couple of minutes that he somehow didn't survive or that his life was in peril when I know he's going to be an able-bodied person in time for the Battle of the Last Alliance. I'm like, what? this is kind of why you invent show-only characters. Yeah. <laughs> um, so you can do stuff with them because I don't know their fate. Better Call Saul literally just wrapped up its very, very excellent series run because they established very early on this character of Kim Wexler, played by Rhea Seahorn, and she is not anywhere in the Breaking Bad universe. So the entire time from season one through season six, you're like worried about her fate because you didn't see her with, you know, Saul in Breaking Bad. Yeah. Um, and like that was a huge emotional pull throughout the entire series. But here it's like, Okay, like yeah. I know this guy's gonna live, and literally, like I don't need named characters to die all the time. But like you have a whole stable of them, and none of them, like you literally did the apocalypse, and all of them survived. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, you just have a couple of red shirts that you show on, like a, <laughs> you know, a couple, you know, infirmary beds or whatever it's called. But other than that, it's like I, I just don't understand what, like, these are things that like basic storytelling one hundred and one like would fail, like you would fail. Like, yeah, this is why I, I joked online. Like even the people who are writing the Marvel movies, like the Russo brothers or John Watts or these other, like completely nothing of directors, they still at least get that those basic parts about storytelling. And I don't get what this show is doing because uh, I, it just, it doesn't make sense. Nothing about Tolkien is let's do a mystery box with things we already know the answer for. Yeah. It, they're more inclined in just say the Lord of the Rings to actually sit the characters down and explain what this all is before they go and do stuff yeah. as opposed to like hanging it out. And I think what really, I think really got my goat was during this episode when they paired up Galadriel and Theo, which <laughs> I thought was fine. Yeah. I like mixing up characters. Um, that's something that Game of Thrones did very effectively is just like swap characters every season or halfway through seasons and see new dynamics. But then there's this thing about like, Galadriel's like, do not think too hard about these questions. They will hollow you out. Yeah. And I'm like, this entire show is a mystery box. You are making something hollow because everything you're doing is just questions about things we know are going to happen. Yep. Yeah, I, I think it's also it's interesting as well, because like, it, you know, I, I at this point, I've beaten the fucking horse to death a second time. Uh, it's never even coming back from the halls of Mandos at this point. I've flogged it so much. But like Tolkien's writing never does this shit of don't ask questions and also treat everything kind of flippantly like like everything about Tolkien's writing is like what do you do when you are presented with a difficult question and the people who are always shown to be in the right are the ones who do deal with those questions head on like I think it's like the kind of big thing with um uh, you know whatever I'll get into this later uh or hopefully never if my sanity returns to me but like um the 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 scene in the book, uh, Two Towers, uh, at Hedith Anna, uh, I've heard since Dude Rabbit and then Window on the West, um, the, 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 the tension causing question in, in that, those chapters is this question of, uh, will Faramir do what he knows is, is right, even though it is against authority, even though it, it demands rebelling against authority. And that is not just like a kind of, oh, a nice kind of tropey question for uh, literature. It is one of the single most important questions in human history since, like, like literally since the records have started, but specifically to Christianity since the Old Testament, right? Like, it, there is no more question more important than at what point do you render unto Caesar what is Caesar's? Um, you know, John Knox, Protestant reformer in, in Scotland, uh, his most significant 
significant con contribution to, to intellectual history is this question of on rebellion and, and the right to, uh, like not the right, but the moral obligation, the moral and, and, and sort of Christian obligation to rebel against um, authority when that authority is not good. Uh, and and all of Tolkien, all of his writing is dealing with these difficult questions and, and making your judgments of people based off of how they handle these questions having someone sh having someone like who is literally galadriel for starters shirk a fucking question <laughs> is insane like it's funny to dunk on like uh galadriel and the mirror of galadriel scene in, in peter jackson's lord of the rings where she's like the mirror shows things that are things that were and things that might never come to pass or whatever the fuck which is like such a mealy mouth like galadriel shut up but this is like galadriel i am begging you to engage your brain and say something like this isn't even just mealy mouth this is like the dipshit kid at the back of the class raising his hand to basically be like fuck you teacher i'm not here to learn and then putting his hand back down like why like why why is any of this happening and like the thing you brought up with faramir that very specifically it poses a question of course it might be tropey but it poses a question about his character about who this guy named yeah. faramir is like and what that decision will say about his character and like that is not present with any of the mysteries or questions or dilemmas that are presented in this show. Um, as uh, one of my friends, Sean Collins, said, like, take Adar, for instance. Like, he could be an interesting character if the show was interested in who he was. Yeah. Instead of trying to make a show where the audience is trying to guess who he's going to be. Yeah. Um, or if he's going to be anyone. Same thing with, like, Halbrand or The Stranger. There's, like, seven of these guys, which is insane. Yeah. Um, you only need, like, one mystery box. Um, again, the J.J. Abrams, like, pushing for these guys to make the show, like, really, like, I, I can't unsee that because it's... Like you can see J.J. Abram-esque like fingerprints all over the storytelling. Yeah. Because th the things that are mysteries are just like plot details. Not even plot details. They're just like world building details. Like the wall is 700 feet tall. I bet you like that's going to be a big reveal. I imagine at the end of episode eight, they're going to have a cry on that says Mordor. Uh, by the way, this land is like 700 square kilometers <laughs> and Druin is like 200 feet high or yeah. this like... Because that's the level of content they're giving us. They're just giving us facts. Yeah. And I figured this might as well be a chance to talk about how this episode ended, um, which is because um, they kind of bookend the episode with uh, scenes in what we know to be Mordor. Anyone who has half a brain who saw the uh, volcano blow up at the end of ep last episode and know that we're in Tir Harad, like all these things are clear. These are context clues. These are context clues that anyone would be able to pick up. But then they have Joseph Malwi, who's a good actor, be asked, you know, what should we call this land now? It's not the Southlands anymore. <laughs> and instead of letting the actor at least deliver a clumsy line, they show the Southlands like cry on that they've been using for all their map stuff. And then they just like burn it out and replace it with Mordor. They don't even burn it out well. Like it's not even a good fucking burn. It's a totally like it like Mordor doesn't burn out from the like letters of like the Southlands. It just burns from fucking nowhere, which is such a good fucking explanation of the show which is like amazon has like created a show out of nothing that has nothing that like would not burn if amazon weren't just dumping fucking gasoline on everything it saw and lighting uh fires and then running to the press being like look at this spontaneous flame we totally didn't light it ourselves this just happened shut the fuck up 
Yeah, it's uh, it's PowerPoint transition level of like <laughs> font work, which is really annoying. And here's another thing. If you wanted to do something clumsy like this, they've been doing this whole like disoriented map thing like this entire season just so the audience doesn't know where we are, which yeah. again, not trusting your audience. But what if they use this moment to zoom out, show the map and then stop all that spinning shit and be like, okay, this is the creation of Mordor and this is now going to center the story and center the map. So now you know where everything is like that could be an effect thing because that at least gives some kind of purpose to the narrative being told but it's it to see that font without any of the map behind it which is how it was presented earlier um i I, there's no style to it and i'm gonna make like the worst comparison in the world but uh in captain america civil war they actually use cryons effectively because they they do this like oversized font thing like siberia and it'll take up the entire screen or whatever. Yeah. Um, and they do it a couple times, um, like in London or, you know, New York, wherever. But it's all building up to the fact when they're going to introduce Spider-Man. Um, because when they flash queens on the screen, that's supposed to be, oh, shit, here comes Spider-Man. <laughs> oh. And that's something that's like trusting your audience to know that means. And I'm like, oh, that's why they've been like throwing these in our face the entire movie so far is so that when spider-man's about to come everyone knows to like start beating off because we're all just there to see (laughs) spider-man um but it worked because it it signaled something to me and it was kind of creative and it mostly is for the audience it's not for anything in universe but it worked and that's what cryons are generally they are for us and not for in universe yeah i also think the other thing is right so like uh like you point out correctly the the orc is like uh adar what do we call this new land of ours i was bracing for him to be like well it is a black land black and cindarin is more and uh land and cindarin is door i shall call it more door so i feel like we dodged the bullet and not that but but having a, a an in story character ask that question and then zooming out to have text on the screen that's not visible <laughs> to those characters answer it is so fucking funny to me right because like i'm not opposed to that on on like i'm not opposed to that writ large like i think that that kind of thing would be a really good way of either doing some comedy or introducing some dramatic irony which is of course a route to comedy uh, uh, but like this poor guy has just asked this question and we know the answer to it but he's never gonna get the fucking answer and it's just assumed that the answer is there now because the screen like the letters were flashing on screen and it like that to me is just this perfect summation of this like stories and these writers inability to separate the story from the like meta discourse around it and they will never break themselves of the shitty garbage writing until they stop thinking about you know what it's Tony Gilroy thing Uh, Tony Gilroy gave a, a, a really cool an interesting interview i think with variety and um, where you know the interviewer who was a bit kind of clotting but whatever was like um oh um you know how did you manage to make a good quality star wars and tony kaori was like i got all of my guys together and i said stop treating it like it's star wars stop thinking about this like it's star wars you are hired because you're an oscar award-winning editor you were hired because you're an oscar award-winning costume designer you were not hired because you were a Star Wars fan. I don't want Star Wars fans producing this shit. I want Oscar award winning uh, craftsmen producing this shit. And that worked. And now Andor is great. And Andor is probably the best Star Wars uh, we've had in 30 years. And that is what mm-hmm. these guys need to do. They need to stop thinking about Lord of the Rings. They need to put burn the fucking Peter Jackson DVDs, burn the Blu-rays, put the books. To be honest, we know they're not reading the books anyways, but just put them out of sight. And they need to treat this like they're writing an actual show and not like they're playing fucking soggy biscuit with the unfinished tales. Cause I'm just like sick of this, like 
crossover where like half the time we're having to fill in the plot beats that they can't that they're so untalented they can't write with the like knowledge that we can only pick up on like tolkienwiki.com like come on guys this is amateur hour literally they could have also just done this at the end of last episode yep. at the point where you blew up the giant volcano that we know is going to be mount doom based on <laughs> the oro druid it name before <laughs> right it, so why 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 don't just flash mortar at the end of the screen? It would still be kind of clunky, but at least it's like, okay, that makes sense. And it, this is, they made an entire seed just for this cry on reveal. I can't <laughs> tell you how, how bad that is. That's, it's just so silly. Um, Let's see, what bad thing do I want to talk about next? <laughs> um, um, I actually have one related to this Mordor cry on that uh, is again this through line of them not knowing what the fuck to do with the words they've been given. Um, yeah, which do is, it. <laughs> I, 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 I fucking, <laughs> I had tears in my eyes during the scene. I was laughing so hard. Um, when Elrond for Elrond, because at the end of every Durin and Elrond cycle, because they like at, at the start of every episode where Elrond and Durin feature, they go back to like square one with where their relationship was where it's like tense and icky again and then they have to get to the point where they're ending on good terms and then we just know mm-hmm. in the next episode it's gonna be tense and icky again anyway so we've gotten to they're on good terms again and Elrond's leaving and Elrond does Ohana means family and family means never letting never leaving anyone behind or whatever except he does it in the dumbest fucking way which is he's like to Durin in the most condescending way possible my people of the elves we do not say goodbye we say namarie and namarie means go with goodness and I'm like are you shitting me? Goodbye, the word, is a shortening of God be with you or goodness be with you. Motherfucker, you've just said we don't say goodbye. We actually say goodbye. Fuck you, Elrond. <laughs> like, are you kidding me with this? And, and this is it. Like, these guys, they just have been given all of these things and they don't have the, like competency or capacity to like go through and like understand the context of why these details are included so they just throw them and see what sticks and it's all the way through and it's like you know the shitty like metaphors where like Disa's always doing and it, at this point it kind of feels minstrelsy in a weird way like she's kind of like mammying it up because like she's been given this awful script and it's like oh well you know she's gonna make some weird fucking analogy about like hammers and stones and oh we need to beat the shit out of the fucking hot iron or whatever while it's still hot so that way we can bake something and it's all like folksy and then the harfoots do this too where they're always like pulling out these weird rustic sort of analogies and what it is is these guys can't write to save their lives and so they're just burying things in details and that comes out in the actual dialogue is these clunky metaphors and analogies and so in lieu of writing anything of competency what they're just doing is like taking these textural details and using that to mean things instead of using like you know what um i had someone dm me when they were starting to read Lord of the Rings for the first time. And they were like, why the hell is there a reference to a freight train uh, in the start of, in, in the prologue to uh, Fellowship of the Ring? And they were like, surely this is, this takes place in a totally different universe stars. Why are they talking about freight trains? And I'm like, yeah, it, like, it's a good question. It's a really valid question. And the answer is because Tolkien knows that, that like a freight train means something to us. So when he's trying to describe a dragon, he knows the way to describe the heft and weight of a dragon is to go with a freight train because we all understand what that means. And there's this willingness to like move out with the confines of uh, the the universe that he set in in order to pull in details that make the language and the writing more profound and more successful. And these guys have just wheedled themselves into this hole where they won't leave the universe. And so everything like they're already untalented writers, but they're just making it worse for no reason. Yeah, it's bad. Um, I'm going to dig in uh, 
probably unfortunately, into some of this Elrond and Durin stuff real quick, um, because there's a couple things that really bother me. First, so like you said, it's basically a cycle of distrust, trust, and then uh, King Durin coming in to shut everything down. Um, and that's basically happened, it feels like, a couple episodes now. So the end of that whole sequence for this episode is Durin throwing the leaf that was magically healed by Mithril, which we'll get to that as well. But like he throws it down through the hole that, you know, Durin and Alrond were trying to create, and it like floated all the way down. And then there's the Balrog. <laughs> and I'm like, we know the Balrog's coming. And you like, it feels like almost like they're afraid their show isn't good enough. So they need to show us something shiny now, like, <laughs> like, like, what's it called? Like dangling some keys in front of us. Cause all the Balrog stuff, and maybe I'm just wrong about this, um, most of that is third age stuff. Is that correct? Yeah, more or less. So um, I don't know what they're going to do here, but um, I do want to talk a little bit about this Mithril plot uh, <laughs> before we get into the vibraniumification oh, of Mithril. Um, I'm a little bit curious about what they're doing with the character motivations here, especially with uh, Disa pushing uh, Durin to disobey her father and like treat Elrond as like the end-all be-all and they should dig any ways. Um, but they, they, they're doing it to save elven lives and to stop the corruption or whatever that's occurring in middle earth and it doesn't strike me as the dwarves delving too greedily or too deep yeah um which comes with its we talked about this back in our um first uh episode on moria back in our fellowship coverage and that is kind of steeped in some racial stereotypes or anti-semitic stereotypes so i don't mind them trying to expand on that but this just feels like kind of tearing that up yeah. and just like doing something completely different and just something that's, I don't know, something I'd expect more out of a C-rate Marvel comic than out of like something based on Tolkien's work. Yeah. Well, so this is the thing is, th this episode in particular has been rife with these kind of examples where like, there are things that support the arguments I tend to make about this. Like there's also the thing where um, Elendil, when he's looking for a sealder during this fake out, he does the where is my son thing, which is the Denethor thing. And I was like, fuck yeah, mm -hmm. I've been saying Faramir, a sealder, one to one, let's go. I hate winning under these circumstances though. Cause this is the other thing I've been saying. Like, in um in in the legendarium right like it is effectively true that the reason that the the dwarves of moria woke the balrog is because they dug too deep and too greedily however <laughs> they were responding to market well okay let's <laughs> I, I, I do not trust the idea of market logic, but they were responding to quote unquote market forces, right? And they were only responding to those market forces that existed because the elves demand for Mithril to use as jewelry was so high. It wasn't because they were doing something like fucking, uh, what is it, effective altruism or something. They weren't doing something benevolent. They weren't doing charity for the sake of the elves. They were, they had a good deal going. Like they were strip mining the earth because they were making a lot of money off of it. Like, it is a very, like, clear, moral, cut and dry sort of circumstance. Now the question is, should the elves have really been demanding this much mithril? Should maybe they have done, a, I don't know, a mild degrowth economy? And should the dwarves maybe have not been <laughs> strip mining? Like, these are the questions that are interesting. The questions that are interesting is not, what if it wasn't actually the dwarves that were delving too greedily and too deep without any moral nuance? What if it was just they didn't do it for a bad reason, they did it for a good reason, actually, and they were punished by God, apparently, for it? Like, like, like what the fuck? Why? <laughs> the gods really don't like the dwarves in this universe, do they? <laughs> no. Uh, oh, God. Um, but I do, I do want to talk about what's going on with Mithril here, because... 
like I think I said a couple episodes ago and probably said like very like earnestly and warm heartedly in our fellowship covered is like, I like Mithril. It's just a little flourish of world building. And I know there's more of it in the expanded token stuff, but it's just like, oh, cool. You make really good armor or possibly weapons, you know, jewelry or the gates of Moria are made out. Like it felt like just like a part of the world, like just a natural part of the world that existed that came with some kind of upside and then downside with what it led to the Balrog. But now it's like a magic cure-all for evil. Yeah. Like you could just like put it next to it. It's literally what they do in the Black Panther comics. And a little bit, a bit of it is in the Ryan Coogler movie where they can basically use vibranium to make armor, but they can also like stick it in people's necks and it kill like cures bullet wounds and like all sorts of crazy shit. And that's Marvel comics. I'm more than willing to make that leap for that, especially because vibranium's always kind of done that going back to the Jack Kirby comics of the 1960s. But here it's just like, it feels like the Mormons watched Black Panther and <laughs> like, ooh, we can do that too. Like literally the origin story about a Silmaril like getting into the earth and changing the mineral, that's exactly the opening to the Black Panther film <laughs> where like an asteroid with vibranium crashed into Africa and then it permeated through all the ground oh, and Jesus all that stuff. Christ. And that's why um, Wakanda is the only place with vibranium, which I know this isn't a Marvel podcast, but I keep coming back to it because they're like turning Lord of the Rings into that kind of mid-tier content sludge that is Marvel stuff, yeah. but never hitting any of the highs that still makes me somewhat enjoy, you know, I'd say 70% of the MCU at times. Yeah. Um, it's just not doing that. Yeah. Well, you know what? Like, I, I I think I'm at this point, I'm just going full tinfoil hat. But this whole Silmaril, like, it's actually good that we're strip mining the Mithril uh, because there's a moral purpose for it and it's going to save the world. And, and this kind of desecration of natural, natural resources is a good thing. This just reads to me as, like... Uh, the propaganda arm of Amazon. Uh, I should also mention here, by the way, uh, this Amazon Studios is the uh, the entertainment wing of Amazon, uh, the uh, global uh, fuck up corporation who today or this week, rather, fired 40 employees uh, for leaving their fucking workplace in the middle of a fire. Uh, and it just so happens that these uh, these staffers that they these workers that they fired were also trying to unionize. And I just want to do a little aside here and say that there's a thing called the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory. And uh, the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory, Triangle Shirtwaist, uh, was a was a factory that produced uh, literally, as as the name says, the shirtwaist for women's shirts. <laughs> uh, and it was staffed primarily, well, almost exclusively by women. Uh, and it dealt with uh, cotton. Uh, and if you don't know anything about cotton, cotton is incredibly flammable as a material uh, and it burns very quickly. Not quite as quickly as like film uh, in celluloid film, like in, in Glorious Bastards, but not far off in terms of burn speed. It is an incredibly dangerous thing once it's on fire. Um, the uh, factory had a some sort of accident. Something went wrong. Uh, a fire was uh, catalyzed and the managers of the Triangle Shirtwaist factory barred the doors uh, and killed hundreds of women uh, because they burned to death uh, in, in this factory because the managers couldn't be fucking bothered letting them out. Uh, now, for legal purposes so that we don't get sued by very divorced man Jeff Bezos, uh, I am not saying that Amazon was trying to uh, bar the door and kill all of its workers uh, through fire. Uh, I am saying, though, that they did punish uh, workers by firing them, by depriving of them of their livelihood for trying not to burn to death. Uh, and that's some truly fucked up shit. So as we watch this episode and this season, we have to keep in mind that this is the kind of behavior that Amazon, 
of Amazon Studios and Amazon Prime. This is what they're doing in the world. So, you know, a little tinfoil hat of me to say this, but this all feels like a fucking propagandizing bit for uh, when we coup Chile again and when we coup Brazil again so that we can strip mine rare earth minerals uh, and lithium, particularly lithium, so that uh, Mr. Elon Musk of apartheid fame uh, can uh, produce his stupid flaming fucking vehicles. It is instead of we're just strip mining for the sake of uh, growing the economy at a totally an uh, unsustainable rate. It's actually we're doing it because without the rare earth minerals and the lithium, the elves are going to die. And don't forget, if the elves die and you say that that's uh, a totally necessary thing to do because fuck the elves are all weirdos. Um, actually, you're the real racist. And so it is really important that we throw Lula in jail and uh, put Bolsonaro back in the presidency in Brazil and, you know, get a whole bunch of Chile and shot because actually that's just the moral and good thing to do. And we are not delving too greedily and too deeply. We're doing the right thing. And to that, I say, fuck Amazon uh, and uh, up the uh, up up the Bolivarian revolutions as well. But yeah, this whole thing is just like insane. Yeah, um, I'm just going to say real quick, like in our normal coverage, we spend a lot of time talking about the ideology of production when it's both good and bad with the Lord of the Rings films. And part of the reason we do that is because of things like this. Like we should be able to see what kind of messaging exists in an Amazon show. Um, the other thing, like Amazon put out two quote unquote subversive uh, like superhero properties. Um, one of them is Invincible and um, I can't remember what the other one, but it basically po posits like, what if the superheroes are the bad guys and the Lex Luthor, Luthor type is like the actual good guy, <laughs> which when a guy like Jeff Bezos is at the head of the company that's doing this kind of shit, you have to think about these things. Um, yep. I, I do want to, um, there are a couple more things I actually do want to talk about with this episode, mostly so we can yell at. Um, the first one I want, I'm going to kind of make way for you because one of the choices they made in this episode is that um, Muriel, the queen, uh, she goes blind. Um, it is revealed to us in, um, she is one of the survivors um, that is found by um, Valandiel, I guess. And like they get her on a horse or something like that. But anyways, like in the orange fade, they like make their way to a nearby camp that the Numenorians had set up before doing their charge last episode. And then once they actually escape the orange fumes, um, she's, she can't see, she thinks she's still in Mordor. Um, and then that's where Elendil and Valandil, God, I hate that I have to say those names in conjunction, <laughs> um, realize that, Oh, she's, she can't see anymore. Um, and I'm not sure. It, I mean, it could be like, a temporary thing like if it's like Han Solo coming out of the carbonite <laughs> instead of a big dark blur he sees a big light blur um but I, I I don't know what this is um and I know you don't know what it is but can you tell me what, what you think is going on here yeah so I think what they're doing is they're going to use this as the excuse for uh for Farrah's own to usurp her as in she's disabled now and therefore can't be uh, a, a, a queen uh and uh small wonder her father uh who is um Tar Palantir, uh, otherwise known as the far-seeing king, literally, uh, is also usurped, uh, has also been kind of ousted. And now I'm sure this is how they're going to oust her, or it's going to be something that leads on the way to her ousting. And, you know, maybe her chat about the wave uh, will now be disregarded on the basis that she's blind. Everything about how this was handled was a fucking nightmare. Uh, and, and like, 
you know, I, I try to behave myself sometimes because I have found as someone who is disabled that people tend to not listen to you uh, if you get kind of heated about being disabled and about how uh, fundamentally dog shit that is. Uh, so I will try to do this in my calmest, nicest way possible. But everything about this is, uh, number one, using the mere existence of disability as a, a sort of cheap ploy for pity and for, uh, like, tragedy. Um, and, and you know, there's even an, uh, a bit, because these guys are just so devoid of, of subtlety, of any ability to do subtlety at all, uh, there's the conversation between uh, Galadriel and, and Muriel, where Muriel literally says, don't pity me, uh, save the pity for the enemy. Um and I kind of feel two ways about this as someone who is like specifically visually impaired, uh, like, you know, a couple of years ago, like I got told that I would not be able to do a whole bunch of things that I like doing legally anymore because, because I had hit that rate of blindness. And I like, you know, I remember walking out of the, the, uh, optometrist, I was in Cambridge at the time and like walking around, uh, the beautiful city and just you know, crying and being really upset about it and being like, these are all of the things, these are all the beautiful things that I'm going to lose access to. Uh, and not, and not just like the beautiful things that I'm going to lose access to, but the ability to live independently. Uh, like, you know, one of the things that I'm no longer able to do is drive. Uh, and that means that I, I cannot take care of myself in one way. And, you know, the society is like, uh, well, Western society, Anglo's, the Anglo world is like so car oriented. And once you take away the, that ability to drive, you are, you are disabling someone, you are disabling me specifically. So anyway, so so there's all of that. And and there's this kind of deep and heavy emotionality around it. And so on one in one sense, I get the line about, you know, don't don't pity me, pity the enemy. But it's also just hollow to me. And um, because, you know, and especially this week actually, where I have been having kind of a lot of repeated meltdowns about my inability to see things and how awfully that affects uh my life and my my relationships with people and my ability to do things. Um that kind of like, oh, she's the good kind of disabled because she says, don't pity me for my disability and I'm taking it all calmly and I'm taking it on the chin. Um, it just sucks. And, and, and another sort of reason that compounds on the suckiness of this, of this like, oh, good disabled person who's not too emotional about it, um, is that this exact plotline, well, not this exact plotline, but damn near this exact sort of setup exists in, in a in a children's cartoon of all things, which is Star Wars Rebels. Um, and, and in Star Wars Rebels, um, a, a, a character loses their sight. Um, and in the process of dealing with the trauma of having lost their sight and, and their sort of way, main way of uh, communicating and engaging with the world, um, they they go through a, a whole series of incredibly intense emotions. And, and, you know, there is anger. There's so much anger. And and it, and, it, and it's anger that, like, I, you know, I resemble. I, I saw this character going through this, this anger and this hatred and I was like, God, that is what it feels like. That is what it feels like. And, and wow, I can't believe I've seen this on TV and seen it in a way that gets it. And he's not like this character isn't shown to be a dickhead for having this anger. And then there's the sorrow and the sadness and the, the feeling of, of failure, because one of the things that's really wrapped up in disability is it's not just about feeling sad for yourself, but it's about feeling guilt. And that like, you now know that for the rest of your life, you are going to be a burden on other people. And no matter how much people will be like, you know, no, you're not a burden. It's okay. I don't mind doing it. That you carry that feeling with you forever. Um, and all of these things, right, are all wrapped up into this experience of disability. And they're not universal, but but they are quite common. Um, and I think to take 
her from having this traumatic loss of sight, this traumatic loss of one of her senses, to basically being a stoic fucking sage about it and being like, you know, it's fine, whatever, uh, in 30 seconds. And her immediately having the presence of mind to be like, this is politically bad, they can't see. You know, she's instructing Elendil to keep walking so that nobody can figure out that she's blind and that's a bit sort of insidious and subversive in some ways. Um, All of this stuff is just like, they have not thought about how they're going to portray this ability on screen. And what they've done is said, what's the worst thing that could happen to someone uh, being disabled? We're going to put that on screen because we're, we're not going to have the balls to kill someone off, but we are going to have the balls to disable them so they could still be useful as a character to us later. But we're going to do it in such a way that they are a, a, a person who is effectively undisabled by the sheer strength of their personality uh, and, and by their ability to continue doing things. And like, to be honest, like, I really thought we'd moved beyond this. Uh, the Rebels plotline was like 2016. So we're like six years on from this now at minimum. I thought we were decades beyond this. Uh, and seeing this now, I'm like, like, sorry, I, I'm trying to maintain my cool around this because I'm, uh, it's not hysteria, but I don't think this shit is funny anymore. Um, and I don't really think this shit should fly anymore. And I think... If you are going to write about blind characters in this way, you better goddamn have someone who is blind on your writing crew uh, to do it. And you better make sure that they're getting paid just as much as you, because uh, otherwise it just feels weird and exploitative. Uh, and I'm not a fan. Yeah. Um, just to go back to what we said, I don't think this can be divorced from how Amazon treats its employees with yep. disabilities either, because it's very much not helpful to them. And then also, I have a feeling that we're going to get a like a twisted and sake, and I mean that in a derogatory fashion, like version of for all your wisdom, you do not see line from Denethor. Yeah, I bet you they're going to twist that into. Oh, God, um, I haven't even thought about that. Holy shit. It's going to be because she's blind, but she has wisdom. It's like, oh, she can't see, but she can truly see now or something. And like it. It, I, I, I don't know. I, I don't even want to talk about it yeah. at this point. Um, I, I do have an idea for something fun we can do, but first I feel like we should at least pay attention to the Harfoots for just a second, um, which, you know, I think George, George uh, J.R. Tolkien would be a fan <laughs> of if we just paid attention to the small folk a little bit. Uh, what we get with them in this episode is it's really frustrating and it's very similar to what happens in, with uh, Moria and uh, Durin and Elrond where they have like one minor rock fall and it like causes everyone to fucking lose their minds. Yeah. Um, we have this stranger guy who's been very helpful because he is a big folk. He's been helping carry stuff. He's been doing stuff. He's been like a good, like he's been a very helpful companion on this little trip. Um, but then they come across um, like a forest that's clearly near Mordor or it got some of the volcanic, um, whatever, aftermath of it, just like flaming rocks hitting it and destroying their little orchard. And uh, they ask the stranger to go try to do a thing. Uh, so he goes and tries talking to a tree. Well, all fine and good. I noticed they actually uh, subtitled his Quenya yeah, for at once. this point, which... <laughs> Um, I assume they just listened to our podcast last week and realized how they <laughs> fucked up. Uh, but that, uh, what's it called? Uh, like one tree branch falls and a dumb kid who ran towards it, like kind of gets under it, but Nori saves him. No one is hurt. Yeah. Um, but because of this, like one minor thing, they decide like, well, fuck this guy. Let's send him off. And like, and then like literally like an hour later, they realize that all of a sudden the entire orchard is coming back. And that is just so much writing plot for convenience sake. Yep. It's like, you need to send this guy off so you can like start a new adventure with uh, Poppy and Nori, like, chasing after him but the context in which or the you know the inciting incident is so so minor that it 
strains credulity. Like, I'm like, why this guy clearly is valuable to you guys. He can help so much. And just because you told him to go do some magic that no one really understood, whether it's the stranger or um, the Harfoots, and it caused one tree branch to fall, everyone just loses their goddamn minds. Yeah. And I'm like, I don't understand this. And it's, and then with the reveal, like, oh, they're going to go looking for him at the end because clearly he does a good thing. I'm like, you just try to set up, you can find better ways to send off Nori and Poppy on an adventure. Or yeah. you can have the stranger like doubt his power and he wants, he like runs off on his own. I don't know, but it just, this all sucks. Yeah. It's just all like, it's just really thoughtless. Like I about cried laughing uh, when I read that interview where they were like, yeah, we're going to need like two or three years to write season two. Uh, and sorry, I'm going tinfoil hat. We're never going to see season two. I don't think we are. And um, I think they are about to memory hold this motherfucker like they did uh, Ryan Johnson's Star Wars trilogy. Um, I think they've said uh, we're going to take two to three years to write this uh, because we need time to make sure that we're doing it right. And it's never going to come back. Uh, I I don't think it's ever going to come back. Uh, they've been, like, pushing a whole bunch of these stats. Uh, there was this weird variety, uh, like, industry sort of stock uh, bolstering piece with the head of Amazon, the president of Amazon Studios, where she was like, well, we've had a whole bunch of, you know, 250,000 new subscribers uh, entirely due to Amazon Studios. Uh, and then I was flipping through reading a whole bunch of the other uh, industry publications um, dealing with uh, Amazon. And they've attributed this 250K boost in subscribers to just about everything under the sun so far. So they absolutely have no idea if uh, Rings of Power has actually brought in this 250K that they're claiming it does. Uh, and uh, they know it because they're just not even being like subtle about it. Um, so I'm going to go ahead and guess we're never going to see season two of this. Uh, and if we are... Uh, it's probably just going to be used as kind of like a linchpin to open up the rights to the Silmarillion so they can do a, quote, better job at it. Um, but yeah, it, you know, it, I just think this thing is all awful. At the sooner this uh, season is is over, the better, because I think this has really just been a masterclass in how not to do a story. Oh, yeah, Absolutely. Um, and I'm sorry, I, I don't even really have anything to say about like the Eminem looking uh, Sauron worshippers or whatever they are. Um, they kind of show up and burn down the orchard after the stranger fixed it. But there's there's really nothing there to talk about unless nope. you have something on them. Um, that um, forest is Mirkwood, uh, Greenwood the Great, they call it. So that's Mirkwood. So Orifer, Thranduil's father, Legolas's grandfather is probably kicking about there. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> Well, that's 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 just fun. <laughs> um, so, I mean, yeah, with any luck, we don't see a season two, and that just gives us more time to cover Andor or something yeah. like that. <laughs> uh, which, uh, yeah, if you want us to cover Andor, leave us a comment or a note or a message on Twitter. We might just do it anyways. Yeah, yeah. But um, if that is something you would actually like us to hear and hear us like both like rave about something, um, which you know doesn't happen all that often anymore. Um, I'm going to skip my whole spiel on why I think She-Hulk is a better show than this for now. Um, I want to see if we can just like quickly lightning round everything in this episode that reminded you of something from Peter Jackson's films. Cause, um, this episode had so many things. Yeah. Um, I think the one you pointed out, like, where is my son? Yeah. Uh, which, uh, you said Denethor, which I thought rocked. Cause I thought Theoden, like after he is broken free of his spell and is like, where oh, is Theodrin? Yeah. Where is my son? Like, it's like basically the same intonation, at least in the movie, Theodrin is fucking dead. Uh, no offense, Theodrin, but <laughs> yeah. like, at, at, at least it's not being dangled in front of me. Like it's a mystery when I know exactly what's going to happen to this guy. Um, uh, I'll give you a chance to get in one. Cause I have another one. 
Um, so there's a there's a shot um, of the uh, the hobbits and uh, the hobbits are standing around yelling at the strangers and it is literally a, an exact like down to the millimeter shot replication of Farmer Maggot and his wife uh, standing looking angrily at Gandalf when uh, in the Shire they're like Gandalf Gandalf fireworks Gandalf and Gandalf's being all tricksy and not doing it and then he lights off the fireworks just when they think it's not going to happen and it cuts to a shot of uh, Farmer Maggot and wife uh, being like oh. Oh, that fucking bastard after Farmer Mega is laughing his ass off. Uh, and it is an exact recreation of that uh, to the millimeter. Exactly the same. There's a scene where Theo and Galadriel are hiding under like a tree <gasps> yes! roots or a oh broken bridge. That is 100% uh, <laughs> that scene in Fellowship of the Ring where uh, Frodo and the hobbits hide under the tree, which is kind of a movie invention, but that is one of the most memorable scenes in Fellowship of the Ring. I think it's really well done. Um, and it just basically... So it's not just that they recreate that scene visually, but then they get into some two towers dialogue because the orcs that are like come nearby, they're like, what do you smell? Man flesh? Um, as a question. And then eventually say, no, it's just ash. But it's basically the same exact line in two towers when um, the Uruks are carrying Mary and Pippin to Urukai and they stop the column is like, what is it? What do you smell? Man flesh. They picked up our trail and like all that stuff. It's like literally the same dialogue. I like was losing my mind. It's like, it's taking like two of my favorite movies and combining them into like this slurry of garbage. And I'm, uh, and to be honest, like I said, I kind of liked Galadriel and Theo together, uh, mostly just because it was like, hey, let's mix and match. We have this cataclysmic event, um, and that gives us a chance to kind of like scatter these characters to the wind and rearrange them and maybe set them off on new plot lines. But then. By the end of the episode, Galadriel's back with Halbrand and they're going to do their thing. Um, Nori and Poppy are going after um, the stranger. So that's still pretty much in the, like, despite the chance to actually like kind of like blow up the story in a way, they just kind of reverted back to what it was. And yeah. I'm going to not do too much Game of Thrones talk here, but like part of the reason that the execution of Ned Stark is so great is because it literally blows up the entire story. Yeah. Um, it creates this war of the five Kings. Arya is now secretly on the road. Rob Stark is calling his banners. Uh, Sansa Stark is now a prisoner. Now Robert's brothers, Renly and Stannis are like, well, now we have to go to arms because we know Joffrey's not Robert's. Like there are many fallouts from like this cataclysmic thing. And that was just a political thing. That wasn't like an entire cataclysm of environment that we saw here. So like using the blowing up of Mount Doom or the creation of Mordor to like kind of reorganize the characters, shuffle them around a bit and give us something new, especially theoretically, we're starting to set up what's going to be happening in season two at this point. If season two happens, uh, see what Emily said about two minutes ago. Um, <laughs> Like this was a great chance to actually kind of shuffle the board a little bit and give us some fresh blood. But by the end of the episode, everything just reverted exactly to what it was. Aaron Deer and Bronwyn are once again, just together again um, with Theo. So it's like every character group we had to start. This is basically how we're going to end this. Uh, Muriel's going back to Numenor without, yeah. um, you know, Galadriel or anything. How, uh, what's his name? Elendil's going with her. So basically every character group we knew is going to, 
per, per, or persevere through this first season without any real mix-ups. Yeah, and, and those that so the 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 conversation between Galadriel and Theo is shot exactly like the extended edition scene in Fellowship of the Ring, where Boromir and Aragorn are chatting in in Lothlorien, and uh, Boromir is like, "Have you ever ridden home to the sounds of the horns of the White uh, Tower, welcoming you?" And you know they will they will call back. You know we are the the Lord the Lords of Gondor are return home. Uh, so that shot exactly the same. And then they fucking cut to the worst thing in the world, which is the Frodo and Arwen bit in Fellowship. And it's like a, a line for line thing about, I was literally half expecting Galadriel to like walk through in a bright white light and pick up Halbrand and carry him on and be like, um, what grace is given me, I now give to you. And then a 1980s ass shot of Elrond uh, looking down at Frodo. And I'm like, this is so blatant at this point. Like an Every bit of that little like interaction was totally Frodo and Arwen. Ridiculous stuff. And um, there was also a bit that was, I was <laughs> cracking the fuck up. And um, there's a whole bit where um, oh, it's the re- the reunion between uh between uh whoever these people are, uh, the milf and the elf and the son, uh, <laughs> whose ears we still haven't seen. Um, and it looks exactly like the bit uh in uh, the start of uh Return of the King where. Oh, uh, oh, not around. Uh, Eowyn is like happily hugging Aylmer as they're all getting pissed uh, in uh, Helm's Deep right before the hail of the Victoria's dead, which is another thing they've used. I mean, like literally every like and a whole bunch of the shots, the like sweeping panning shots are all taken directly from Peter Jackson's films. I just like there's nothing, you know, no, there's nothing new under the sun in a general sense, but there's also nothing new in this show in a very specific sense. <laughs> All right, we'll we'll stop there before heading into some potential spoiler territory, which again, at this point, I don't even know if we're spoiling anything, but uh, we'll just stick to the format for now. Um, if this is where you're getting off today, thanks for joining us. Support us at patreon.com slash mybromycatmypod, where you will get early access to episodes, bonus content, and your very own Middle Earth name, which we will read on air, such as... Johnny Flores Jr., which is not the Middle Earth name. Your Middle Earth name is Lothaman of Palenque. The Silent Spider, Guardian of Kirith Ungol, also known as Ed the Revelator. I, Wendell, a.k.a. Haley Glyphs. Aranwo Minyatar, uh, Matthew Abbott. Idranor of Kolkorthad, Maddie Hugh. And then we got two new $10 patrons, which we'll shout out. They have not yet set their uh, Elvish names yet, but hopefully we'll get them soon. But in the meantime... So these are both translations, one's Quanyo, one's Sindarin of nameless or no names. So it's the dictionary, not me. One is Penes, and yes, it's spelled almost exactly how it sounds, uh, and Dolaneth. And that is for Cam and Zach. So thank you for signing up. Reminder, if you sign up at the $10 level, we will read your name uh, at the end of every episode. And for this time, we would like to thank the following $5 patrons. Sean David Gallagher, a.k.a. Sean, the rascal of Rivendell. And Gabagool, uh, who goes by Beleg Monsieur of Dorloth. Uh, you can send us emails at uh, my brother, my captain, my podcast at gmail.com and follow us at my bro, my cap, my pod on Twitter <laughs> and Instagram. I almost lost it there for a second. Uh, let's just move on with this fucking episode. <laughs> Oh, 
All right, so uh, I don't know if any of these are going to be pleasant topics. Well, one's probably harmless, but we'll do the <laughs> harmful one first. Uh, we get a mention of Celeborn. Celeborn, who we know as the guy in Lothlorien from the Fellowship film, who asks, where is Gandalf? Because whenever Gandalf's not on screen, someone should be asking, <laughs> where is Gandalf? Uh, but he very much wants to speak to him. Uh, but Galadriel just kind of says, like, they were married and then he went to battle and never returned. Yeah. What? Yeah, this rocks. What? This rocks. <laughs> the misogyny of the Galadriel character, like, it was already middling around to, like, 10, 15%, like, tenuous, depending on, like, the time of day and the light in which you were looking at it. It shot up to 115%. So far, about girl boss Galadriel, the only thing we know is that the only reason she's going to war is because her brother is dead and her husband is dead. Her husband is who she has not fucking mentioned. It's so weird. We've got nothing but Finrod, 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 fucking Finrod. And now she mentions Celeborn? She's been married this whole time? Like, I cannot stress enough. In in uh, Morgoth's Ring, which is one of the, the uh, uh, History of Middle-Earth books, um, there there is a, a thing called The Laws and Customs of the Eldar, and it is one of the most perverted sicko things you will ever read. Uh, but it, it details, uh, in great detail, uh, elven marriage customs. Um, and, and Tolkien, being Catholic mad lad that he is, really goes out of his way to say that when the elves get married, it is a big thing. Like, part of their soul, their fea, bonds with the other elves like this is like an unbreakable bond it is the most important thing that you can do <laughs> and, and galadriel basically treats him like like if she'd watched the news and saw that someone she had like had a one night stand with about 50 years ago had gone missing she's like yeah well you know shit happens really and it's like i I just I, like I can't even lend this like I can't I can't take the shit seriously because it's so stupid it's so ridiculous I just like why did they do this like look <laughs> why <laughs> I don't wait, understand wait, uh, sorry sorry um did did Jeff Bezos recently go through a divorce or marital issues because I feel like he did <laughs> and I bet you he's like let's give some divorced energy to um. yeah no September tw uh Mackenzie Scott yep. uh, files for a divorce or no that's from her. No, no, no that's like from she's, him. she. Yeah, that is from him, but she's also filing divorce from I guess whoever she got with after that. But yeah, oh, good for so her. So it's like it's yeah. No, I'm I'm sure that's all good. But it's just like Christ. It's like it's literally it's like I'm getting a divorce. Why don't you put that into your story too and do it to the one people who would probably never get a divorce? Yeah, and like Celeborn's actually like a play a corner of this entire thing that I would actually be curious in. Yep. So to kind of just have him like because now he's going to be a fucking glup shitto yep. or a easter egg not easter egg uh, i talked about how i hate that term but he's <laughs> going to be like a mystery box at some point yeah like where is Celeborn? for i very much want to speak with him <laughs> um we're just going to kind of turn the tables on that so well it's also um, like it was a no like i feel like Celeborn as a character and everything that we know about Celeborn that they would have had access to through the appendices would have fixed so many of the problems with this season. Like Celeborn's longtime hatred of the dwarves, right? That is inbuilt tension right there. Put Elrond and Celeborn, have Elrond married to Calibrian, who is Celeborn and Galadriel's daughter. So Elrond and father-in-law have to go to Moria on the word of the High King Gil-galad, and they have to try and make it work in Moria. And Celeborn's being a racist, grumpy prick, because that's what he is. And Elrond's trying to be the diplomat and that's your inbuilt tension you don't have to reset during an Elrond to zero every single time and have this 
kind of tension between Galadriel and Celeborn as these people who are trying to establish uh, a kingdom in, like, you know, a, a multicultural kingdom where they are the conquerors who have basically fucking ruined these other people's lives. And now they're kind of here to be like, yep, we are here to rule over you. That's all this tension built there. Like, why did they get rid of Celeborn to turn him into a mystery box when every problem this show has would have been solved by just putting that dude in? Yeah, uh, yeah, uh, I, I got nothing on that. <laughs> uh, let's see. Uh, the last thing I want to mention is we get mention of Pelargir, yeah. um, which I believe is mentioned by Arondir as a Numenorean settlement, which yeah. made me kind of look askance at what timeline they're referring to here because it doesn't seem like the Numenorians are really here. Yeah. Um, but anyways, they mentioned this place and that's where he's going to lead Bronwyn and the survivors uh, from the Southlands who are not uh, pledging their fealty to the Monster Mash and the Graveyard Smash. Um, <laughs> what can you tell us about Pilargear? Yeah, so Pilargear is interesting. Um, it is the, so when Aragorn goes through the paths of the dead and uh, and has the, the army of the dead following him, uh, they traverse Gondor from Morannan uh, up at the the White Mountains, which separates Rohan from from Gondor, and they go all the way south and east to get to Anduin, the banks of Anduin, uh, and the biggest port city on Anduin in the south is Pelargir. And this is the city that the Corsairs of Umbar have taken over. Um, and it is also the point, uh, the, the kind of block in the road that prevents all of the southern lords of Gondor from making their way up uh, to Minas Tirith in time and 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 supplementing Denethor's armies in Minas Tirith in time for the, the Battle of the Pelennor Fields. Um, so Aragorn brings the army of the dead there and they uh, overtake uh, the, the Corsairs. They scare the Corsairs literally half to death with the army of the dead. Um, and that is the point at which uh, Gondor as a, as a strategic route is is unblocked uh, and that allows all of the armies of Gondor uh, to then push into Minas Tirith and effectively help to save the day alongside the Rohirrim. Um, it is a Numenorean settlement. Uh, it, it is a second age Numenorean settlement. Again, weird that they've like not handled any of this colonialism thing and made it seem like it was really kind of insular in, in uh, Numenor until now, until suddenly it became convenient for them to drop Pelargir as a name as do you remember Aragorn was in Pelargir? Uh, so they've got that. Um, I, yeah, whatever. It's such a nothing burger city to me. Like it's, uh, it, there is something interesting that they could do with it. Uh, they won't do it though, because they always take the most boring route out of this. And if you would like a, a really interesting series of stories about Pelargir and its place in, in uh, Gondor's history and Gondor of the, the, the future in universe, uh, Lord of the Rings Online has a really successful series of stories based around Pilar gear. Um, you have to kind of jump to level 100, I think it is, to get in there, 105 maybe, uh, which you can buy now. But it is a really interesting uh, bit of taking the kind of context uh, of the Corsairs and of the Numenorean settlements and of the settlements of the Numenorean settlements that are in Gondor before the faithful, before Elendil, Isildur, and Anarion come over and, and asking questions about how those settlements fit in together once that high and mighty new colonists come over uh and yeah lord of the rings online really recommend that no fucking clue what they're gonna do here probably something stupid so brace for impact so that closes the book on this episode of my brother my captain my podcast before we do our regular sign off i do want to remind you that we are releasing our very first patreon exclusive episode on october 21st the friday it is the first friday i believe without a rings of power episode so we just want to Keep giving you good content on Fridays, right? Is that what we're doing here? Yes. Uh, but anyways, that will be available to everyone at our $10 level. Um, so if you would like to listen to that, our very first episode will 
be a chance to get better know me and Emily, which, you know, enter at your own peril. <laughs> um, I, I know Nori gave us the word for peril, but at least, uh, but uh, yeah, whatever. Anyways, our email is my brother, my captain, my podcast at gmail.com and my bro, my cap, my pod on Twitter. You can support this podcast by subscribing to patreon.com slash my bro, my cat, my pod, where you'll get all sorts of extra stuff that I already went over. I've been Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. You can find me covering Metal Gear Solid over at Podcast Sounds Frontiers and A Song of Ice and Fire and House of the Dragon over at Nauticast ASOIAF. And I've been Emily, also known as JR Tweeting, which is where you can find me on Twitter, where me and Caliborn will be tripping balls and wandering around wondering why our wives haven't called us. Oh, you guys are the real Entwives. <laughs> or wait, no, that's whatever, whatever. <laughs> Toasting a pine to our sound editor, Stephen Boyd, a.k.a. Ethroglier and Drethion, a.k.a. DJ Empirical on Twitter. Please like and review our podcast wherever you may be listening. So until next time, remember... I would have followed you, my brother, my captain, my king. Shit, sorry. Oops, that.